Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Born in New Zealand, Stephanie Toole became interested in wine in London, ran a wholesaler in Perth, and then moved to the Clare Valley when she fell in love with her now husband, Geoffrey Grosset. We chatted about her Mount Horrocks range, her conversion to biodynamics, how she and Geoffrey managed to run two completely different brands from the same cellar, her love of Nero Davila, and why she never needs a break from wine. Hi, Steph. How are you? Absolutely fabulous. How are you going there? I'm really good. And you're at home in Adelaide, aren't you, at the moment? Just down in Adelaide. Been out for a very long lunch here um, in the gorgeous town of Adelaide. Just came down from Auburn for the day and uh, to catch up with you. Fantastic. So, I mean, if you've just been out for a good lunch, there should be plenty to talk about, I'd have thought. (laughs) (laughs) I think so. Yeah. Listen, I so much I want to chat to you about, you know, the biodynamics, Riesling, Clare Valley. But let's just start with a bit of your history, because people can hear, I think, from your accent that you're a Kiwi. You're a New Zealander. You haven't lost that accent. Just spent the time, fact that you spent more time in Australia in your life than New Zealand. But just tell us, where were you brought up? Were you brought up in a wine growing bit of New Zealand? No. In, um, in fact, I was brought up in the South Island of um, New Zealand, which is, of course, now... Um, with Otago not being that far away, is quite well known for um, its wines. And I think even where I was born in Timaru, there are some vineyards planted. So not any vineyards at the time, but I think that has developed in the past few years. Yeah, and were your parents like wine drinkers? I mean, was wine part no. of your life going up? No, 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 definitely not, definitely not. I'm I'm one of um, seven kids, and it wasn't until the kids grew up and sort of come back with, you know, having travelled, not really travelled, but having lived outside of Timaru, um, we started, you know, drinking wine, not not seriously, but just as part of dinner um, that, you know, my father took an interest, but definitely not part of um, growing up in New Zealand. Yeah, were those the days of kind of Mulaturgao and things like that, or had the Kiwi industry moved on? Yeah. They were, they were, and I, I was thinking about that earlier and I thought, oh, God, I remember those earlier um, wines that I used to buy from Marlborough, Mulathurga and, and others, and we loved them. We thought that was so sophisticated and fabulous. <laughs> and I'm right in thinking you never formally studied winemaking. No, I never did. In fact, um, I left New Zealand in 1978 um, to travel, and I did. I travelled the world, had a, a, amazing um, experiences, and it wasn't until really I had my second time in the UK, living in the UK, that I um, became really interested in wine, and that was through a wine store in um, in Old Brompton Road called La Vigneron. Oh, you yeah, remember, I remember. Loving your run by Liz and Mike Berry. Liz Berry, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And my sister-in-law used to work there, and mm. we were living together down in um, Wimbledon, 
And so she was sort of running these wine classes or tastings. And so I, you know, I used to go along to those. And in fact, that was the very first time I tasted an Australian wine was in um, London. Was in London? And it was, I remember remember it distinctly because it was Margaret River Cabernet. (laughs) And I reckon the vintages would have been... um, well, this was 90, this was, I'm trying to think, 70, 80. I reckon it would have been the 82 vintages. Wow. Yeah, it was a, yeah. like a vertical, t- you know, like a tasting of different Margaret wines, Vass Felix, um, Kate Mantell. Yeah, yeah. You know, those wines, yeah. And that really piqued my, piqued my interest. Well, and then you ended up back in Western Australia. You went to Perth, didn't you? So was that based well, by, on that I tasting? Did. No, not really. That was just coincidence. <laughs> totally coincidence. I mean, I I just sort of went went where where I felt like the the world, you know, went to Perth. I'd actually been to Perth um, a couple of years before, and just you know, it was just the clear blue skies and the clean cleanness of it all. And uh, so, I decided to move there, and that was in nineteen eighty six. With no intention of um, being in the wine industry at all. Um, long, long, very long sh- story short, I actually got offered a job um, to work in a, a retail store, um, uh, doing you know sales, but also um, putting together newsletters and that sort of thing. That was my background. I was a PA. Um, and so I, that's where I really started in Perth in about 1987. And that sort of progressed through to um, working for Lewin Estate for a couple of years and then owning my own wholesale uh, wine business um, in, in Perth. And, I mean, how did you meet Geoffrey Grosset, who's your, your partner, a kind of life-changing moment? Where did he appear? <laughs> <laughs> he appeared, he got in my way when I was out selling one day. I was like, oh, no, I keep on bumping into this person. I wish he'd get out of my way. And he um, he was out flogging his wines and I was trying to sell other people's wines. And, you know, he sort of we got talking and he said, oh, next time you're in Adelaide, you should uh, come and visit. So I did. Because, <laughs> I mean, by then he'd got, what, a dozen vintages under his belt and he was already something of a superstar, right? Um, had you tasted yeah. his wines before you met him? Did you thought, oh, he's quite nice? Uh, I had, I, I loved his wines. I, and in fact, you know, there was, I was a part of a tasting group in Perth and I remember tasting the 86, uh, it was then Watervale and uh, Polish Hill and a blind tasting and it was just sort of like blew my mind. I thought it was just, they were just extraordinary wines. So yes, I had tasted the wines and loved the wines before I met him. Mm. And then you went and you looked him up next time you were in Adelaide, um, and then you moved to the Clare Valley, didn't you? <laughs> about a year, about a year later, <laughs> so it took a year. Took a year. Well, you know, you've got to keep. Yeah. <laughs> and then I moved over to the Clare Valley in um, December of two thousand and two. Uh, Ninety two. I get confused. Yeah. Ninety two. Uh, don't we all? I think COVID's done that to us. Yeah. And you bought Mount Horrocks? I mean Mount Horrocks existed, didn't it? Mount Horrocks existed. Um I moved over to the Clare Valley with not really any real plan. Um I I, pl- I played 
bridge then and I, I really wanted to play golf. I thought that would be good. I, I can take up bridge and play golf and that would be fabulous. Well, none of that's happened. 30 years are down the track. I still haven't done either of those things. Um, and so the 93 vintage was my first vintage and that's when I bought Mount Horace. And I was actually 12 weeks pregnant as I went through that first vintage, you know, wow. um, yeah. It was it was pretty tough, but it, you know, at the time you just you do you do these things, yeah. And who owned it before you? There were three brothers. They were farmers. They were grape growers, and they owned it. Um, it was pretty run down. It was they they'd had a bit of a, you know, deciding that that wasn't what they wanted to do. And I I can remember saying, well, you know, that'll give me something to do. Um, not really having had a lot of experience with having babies. Um, so I took on Mount Horrocks, bought Mount Horrocks, which at that was just the, the labels and the, you know, a few tanks. Uh, so they kept the vineyards? Other things. They? No, they kept the vineyards. And so then yeah. I had to find fruit sources. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Mm. So for people who don't know it, tell us a little bit about the climate and terroirs of the Clare yeah. Valley, because it sometimes surprises people. It makes Top Cabernet, it makes Shiraz, as well as obviously the yeah. Rieslings, for which it's best known. I mean, can you just give us a little quick overview of where it is and, and what are the climatic influences in the soils? Absolutely. North um, of Adelaide, um, in uh, a very small wine-growing area. In fact, it surprises people how small it is. It's about 26 kilometres long and about 8 kilometres wide, and it accounts for less than 2% of the entire Australian wine production. So we're talking about a tiny wine region that I think really has got a much bigger reputation than what the size is, to be honest. Um, really cool nights, um, even, you know, it's summer here, it's a cool summer, I have to say. We haven't had a, a great, what we would call a really great summer. It's been quite cool, but we get really cold nights, even in the in the middle of summer, and then beautiful, usually beautiful, sunny, clear days. So I think this accounts for the fact that we can grow Riesling and Cabernet and Shiraz side by side and other varieties as well, successfully. And what about soils? Well, my my vineyard soils, my vineyards in the top north eastern corner of Watervale, about 480 metres. It's quite a high vineyard. And the soils are basically red soil over limestone. And that's a, quite typical of Watervale. Other soils um, can be just quite light. They're not heavy. They're not heavy soils. They're um, ancient soils. Australia, yeah. we have the most ancient soils in the world. And uh, I think this has been proven to be uh, a great area for growing grapes yeah absolutely i mean it's interesting you know you made your first vintage 93 purchased grapes i mean in the early days some people said oh you know jeffrey was making the wines who's involved i mean that was never true <laughs> did that piss you off or not <laughs> look you know at the time i just used to ignore it because i knew what was happening i knew what yeah. was going on um looking back at it now you know there were very few female winemakers let alone owner winemakers in the industry so I was just too busy and I had another child 15 months after Georgina was born a new business a new relationship um I was too busy to even worry about it to be honest yeah I mean that's quite a lot on your plate in one go isn't it yeah yeah it was but that's good <laughs> but I get the impression you like that I mean you kind of like being busy don't you and I mean you're so I do dynamic like being busy yeah. <laughs> I do like being busy. Yeah. <laughs> um, where does that come from? Is that from your parents or do you think it's something inside you? 
Um, growing up, we were, we were all busy. You know, I've, I've got five brothers and um, sport was incredibly important in my family. You know, we used to get up in the middle of the night and listen to the All Blacks playing South Africa on the radio, you know, mm. and we'd all get up as a family and my mother would make this big feast. And, you know, I still remember that distinctly because I don't know if it was just because of the food or, and you know, but the radio would be crackling and the whole thing. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it was fantastic mm. thinking back. I love that. It's very interesting, you guys, when you're, you know, there are plenty of winemaking couples in the world, but very few who make their own very different wines in the same cellar. Yeah. The only ones I can think of are Gislaine Barteau and Louis Boyot in, in, in Burgundy. I mean, how does it work? Do you advise each other? Do you ever taste each other's wines blind? You know, do, do you like each other's wines? I get the impression you do. I mean, do you just kind of rub along or are you in the cellar at different points? I don't know. No, we, we work pretty well together. We work, mm. you know, more than that, we work really well together. And we do bounce, obviously we bounce a few ideas off each other. Um, but we definitely have our own style. We have our own um, ideas. We make wine very similar styles, but of course we're looking at different vineyards and we're looking at different varieties. And you know, occasionally, I mean, I I still to this day think Polish Hill is just extraordinary. So you know, I keep on saying, well, oh, this year I'm going to you know knock that Polish Hill off its perch, but. <laughs> this is for anybody who doesn't know. Trying. This is Jeffrey's. This is Jeffrey's <laughs> top riesling and one of the world's great rieslings, right? Yeah. I keep yeah. trying, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to give up. No, well, there are a couple of quotes I read that I like from the pair of you that kind of illustrates the warmth of your relationship and the shared sense of humour you have. You, I'm in competition with him. He might not be with me, but I am with him. Him. I get a lot of my best ideas when Stephanie's speaking. I mean, what's the secret of maintaining what, you know, Aussie journalist Nick Ryan's called your personal partnership, professional separation? I mean, you know, you spark off each other, don't you, in many ways? I mean, not just in we the winery, do. but kind of in life, I think. Yeah, no, we definitely do spark off each other. Um, I think it's a just when you're working so closely together as well, and, you know, I've been, this, I'm coming up to my 31st vintage, and you're working with somebody seven days a week, basically. That's that's a big call in anyone's book, to be honest. <laughs> you know? Well, especially if you're married to them. I mean, that's really tough, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't go there, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, do you ever argue in the wine? Because you've got separate presses, haven't you? Separate tanks, obviously, because you're making different wines, and separate vineyards. Yeah, we oh, – yeah. to- oh, oh, yeah, all of that. Um no, because I mean, I might, <laughs> I might say, "Well, I'm, you can do that if you like." Probably, I wouldn't do that, but you know. <laughs> and what does he <laughs> but, say? I mean, obviously, he's not going to take notice of me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, t- tell us a bit about how your wines differ, because you both make dry rieslings and a Shiraz, yep. but you've got significant points of difference because you do a Semillon, Jeff doesn't. You do a sweet wine, he doesn't. You've got a different approach to Cabernet. You're doing varietal, he's doing a blend. And in the vineyards, can you tell us about how your winemaking approach differs and also how, how you work differently in the vineyards? Okay, so I think the vineyards definitely, um, there's the same no-compromise approach in the vineyards. Everything is very much hands-on um, to achieve the best fruit that we possibly, both of us can, certainly. We're very similar in that respect. 
The Rieslings, um, especially if you're talking about um, my Waterbell Rieslings, Jeff Springbell Riesling, we actually face off, the vineyards face off. Um, mine faces south, Jeff's faces north. You couldn't get two more different wines. Mm. That is definitely down to terroir. That is definitely mm. down to vineyard site. There's nothing different. The pruning's the same. Mm. The clones, a couple of different clones. I only just have one clone. Um, we pick, uh, handpick. We make the wines very similarly. So I would say that that is definitely a, a fantastic example of site, vineyard Did site. You, but didn't you used to pick in different stages and Jeff pick in one go? Or was it the other way around? No, the other way around. So I've got, I've only got, you know, about four four thousand barns, two and a bit hectares. So I don't have a lot of leeway to pick. So I might pick once or one or two picks um, through that that vineyard, and that's about it. Um, I tend to be more, you know, I haven't got a lot. I'm not going to go and pick up, you know, three or four rows and then another three or four rows. So um, I tend to pick more more in one or two hits. Um, with the other varieties, Semion is, it's been a love of mine. I make a barrel fermented, Lee stirred, time on Lee's Semion, which is really gorgeous. Um, Shiraz I've made for a long time and I've made it in a very, I guess, different clear style. It's more elegant. It's quite fine. Um, there's some whole bunch, um, portion of that foot crushed. Jeff's just started making a Shiraz Nero blend. I noticed um, that. You got there before him. <laughs> I did. <laughs> you know, he does tend to, you know, follow on. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the winemaking? I mean, you're, bo- you're both pretty minimal intervention, aren't you, and, and very much letting the place speak, I think, yeah? Yeah. No, definitely. Definitely very much minimal intervention. There's, yeah. I think you get the fruit right and you really – there's very little else you, you need to do. And yeah. that's that's my philosophy, you know. Yeah. Um, no need to do anything. The, the the fruit, the vineyard, will do it for you. Yeah, I mean, you, you both make an Italian style wine as well. Yours is a Nero Davola. Jeffrey's making a Fiano. Tell me when you fell in love with Nero Davola. Well, you were in Italy, presumably Sicily. Where did you come across it for the first time? I actually came across it in a wine bar in Rome, <laughs> and went into this this wine bar, and it had you know a a Bible of a, a wine list, and I, I looked at it and I thought, oh, my God, I don't know. So I handed it back to the Petron and I said, you choose something that I might not have had before. And he bought out a very inexpensive uh, Nero Davila. And I, it, was, it was love at first sight. I loved that wine. And I thought to myself, do you know what? This is the sort of wine that would really suit Australians lifestyle, food, climate. Um, so back, that was in 2003, and it was a stinking hot year in Europe. I don't know if you remember 2003. Yeah, no, boiling, boiling. Yeah. Boiling, boiling. Yeah. And we were heading off to the islands north of Sicily to Panarea. Um, and uh, so I got back to Australia and started trying to source the vines, which was they were not available at that time. So well, I didn't get hold of them until 2008. So I didn't get to plant until 2008. So the vines have been, you know, they're quite mature now. So I've mm. had 10, I've just released my 10th vintage um, of Nero Davila. Yeah, that must must be the oldest Nero Davila in, in, in Australia, isn't it, I thought? Um, I, don't, I think 
narrow I think narrow down in McLarenvale there seems to be a, uh, a quite a few plantings and it does yeah. very well down there and there's terrific narrow dabblers coming out of that region. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, as you said, you started out buying grapes and you bought your own land in 2000, planted vineyards. Um, how did having your own vineyards change your approach? I mean, how many hectares do you have now? Is it eight? About eight. So yeah. I have a small vineyard in Auburn that I planted in um, about 96. So that um, was planted to Riesling for use in the uh, Cordon Cup. Um, but having your own vineyard and having complete control even though, you know, the grower was lovely, you still couldn't get through to them that you wanted a totally organic approach, that it wasn't about yield, it was about fruit quality, and there's just nothing like having that full control. Mm, and I yeah. think I, I can see that now in the wines, most definitely. Because were the, were the original vineyards farmed conventionally, as we might say? I mean, probably sustainably, but... Totally conventionally. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. I think that's a really good way to describe yeah. it, yeah. But you, yeah. you're in a dry area, so presumably not a lot of spraying and intervention needed, right? Yeah. We are in a dry area, and um, my whole philosophy from planting that vineyard was to manage it organically mm. as far as possible, and then that just led into organic certification. Mm. And then from that, um, seeing the benefits of that um, into uh, biodynamics. And I mean, how did you get interested in biodynamics? Was it stuff you'd encountered in Europe or was anybody in Australia doing it? Oh, no, definitely um, looking at what other uh, producers had done. Vanya Cullen, for instance, she's a friend of mine, and I just... Mm. I looked at that. I looked at the vineyards and thought how wonderful they were looking and how how can I improve that? And, and I just thought that was a natural next step. Um, so we, you know, the the um, thirty two hectares that I bought in two thousand, I had surveyed. So it's not planted to to vines. I had it surveyed, and a small area was deemed suitable for vines, and that's been planted. But in that time, I've also been doing a lot of regeneration and planting around a thousand trees a year. I have an area that is used for grazing some cows, which I use in my biodynamic um, preparations, and the rest has been um, put into regeneration of um, native uh, trees and uh, shrubs. So very much the Steiner model, where you've got yeah, it's an ecosystem, really, isn't it? You know, you can't just do one without the other. Mm. I, I just feel like, you know, you've got a it's an all encompassing thing and the and the the um thirty odd hectares that I bought had been raised and it was just um you know, it had been grazed and there were there were very, very few trees on the on mm. the property. So now it's just it's an absolute joy to be out there. Biodynamics catching on in, in Australia. It was interesting reading about some of your workers who Aussies sometimes are pretty no nonsense, and yet they really like the idea of what they call the shit pit. I think is where you're doing all this manure and you're doing your compost and stuff. They've kind of taken yeah. to it, even the slightly, you know, I don't know, what would we say, slightly more spiritual side of it, maybe. Totally, absolutely, totally. It is, if they, and we couldn't do it if they weren't on board. Even mm. you know, as I say, as you say, that spiritual side of it. They didn't believe in it. I don't think it would work. And they absolutely love it. 
they have just embraced it ent- entirely. Is it something you can explain, or is it almost like a leap of faith? That's not really. Do you think? Not really. No. You know, like you know, you're out there in the vineyard, and it just feels so right. Um, I had my Nero was starting to look a little bit, um, you know, a little bit thick. I guess mm. the, the the leaves were turning a little bit pale green, and mm. I thought, what is it with this? Um, mm. Couldn't really pinpoint it, and about. Two or three years later, I'm back to like not last vintage, vintage before I'm out there. I'm like, these these leaves are green, you know. Like <laughs> we've been this was our third year into biodynamics, and we hadn't done anything different, and they had responded amazingly. I can't put it down to anything else. No, it's interesting. So if you take out all the other factors, the only factor that can have changed it is 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 that yeah is the way you're yeah. farming yeah yeah interesting. Yeah. Um, you've also, both of you, I think, now switched to natural yeast rather than, than, than cultured yeast, haven't you? Do you notice a change in your wines as a result of that as well? Natural yeast partially, not entirely, mm. and that's just becoming, I think, we'd, I've tried, I'd had some trials um, before we were certified, and it didn't really, it wasn't, I wasn't really happy with it. Um, I just feel like the yeasts in the vineyard are healthier now, and so I'm getting better results. In fact, amazing results um, from the ferments. They're very clean. They're, they go through without any problems. And I can, you know, I just put that down to obviously the health of the vineyard. So yeah. does that mean if you've got healthier yeast, means you don't get stuck fermentations, you don't get off flavors, you know, reduction, things like that? Yeah. No, yeah. no, no. It's interesting because people don't often talk about that. They obviously talk about, about the quality of the fruit, but you're saying it makes a difference where the, the quality of the yeasts are concerned as well, yeah? Well, I mean, that goes with it, doesn't it, really? Yeah. I, I mean, if you, you've got a, a really healthy, um, non-chemical environment, that means that yeah. the yeasts are going to be happier. I mean, we've yeah. I, I don't know about you, but I'm into my third year of making sourdough since COVID, and you know, you know, my mother gets very temperamental. If I don't look after her, she gets very upset. You know, and uh, I just feel like it's all that's part of it as well. You know, she she needs feeding and she needs yeah. nurturing. And if I forget, she, yeah. she lets me know. And she, she sends off grumpy. some off characters. She gets very <laughs> grumpy. She gets very hungry. Yeah. I mean, Jeffrey's something of a Riesling evangelist, and as you already mentioned, Polish Hill, which is just one of the most amazing white wines in the world. Do you share the same kind of missionary zeal, if I can call it that, uh, for Riesling to tell the world about Riesling or not? I, really, I, I had to put, look up evangelist just to get the right um, um, <laughs> descriptive. But I, I don't think he is an evangelist. He just wants to make great Riesling. And if that means that it's um, more people are drinking it and turning to it well that's great but that's i don't think that's ever been his intention to be honest mm. he just wants to make great reasoning and and if that means that more people want to drink it well that's great but does 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 your reasoning excite you in the same way that his does i mean because you're doing lot you're doing lots of other things as well you're semi on the narrow and stuff My, most definitely it's mm. totally satisfying it's the one wine that i i guess i have to get right every year you have to get it right and you know what you can't there's no way you can hide anything with Riesling. It's such a pure and wonderful variety. I mean, there's a lots of, you know, wonderful new different ways of making Riesling these days, a bit of oak and maybe some extended times on lees and 
for those that like a bit of oxidation. But mm. and you can cover some, perhaps some vineyard mm. problems or the fruits being exposed or whatever. Mm. But if you're making wine like I'm making it, it has to be in that pure, you know, pristine style. Yeah. So it's the most transparent of your grapes, would you say? I think so. I think you're def- yeah. definitely, definitely. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And what about your approach to Syrah Shiraz? We've been mentioned that you've been, you know, mm. you led the way there at Mount Horrocks before Jeffrey. There are a range of styles produced in the Clare Valley. Some of them are pretty powerful. You know, you think about the Armagh or something like that from, from Jim yeah, Barry. Yeah. Where, where, where does yours sit and how did you form your style of, 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 of Syrah Shiraz? I, I remember the first Shiraz I made and and... I think it might have been Jeff, might have been someone else said, well, what sort of style do you want to make? And I said, well, I know what I don't want to make. And I don't want to make a big, blokey, alcoholic, tannic Shiraz. So right from the very beginning, I, I guess I looked more towards, I guess, the Rhone styles. Um, I do I have done and I've always done a portion of whole bunch foot crushed and open fermenters. And I, I keep that portion separate, and I actually mature that in burgundy barrels rather than traditional Shiraz barrels. And it's more—it's not as alcoholic, it's not as big. It's probably a, a much finer, more elegant style of Shiraz. Quite different. And you're using French oak, not not American. I mean, American would be the traditional barrel, would it? Yeah. Well, I don't know if traditional. Certainly, I don't know now, but a. a portion of it would be but no i've never used american oak at all never yeah i mean do you think the clare valley deserves to be better known for shiraz absolutely yeah and can and cabernet yeah yeah how much of it is planted with riesling the clare valley um i think shiraz is the top planting followed by cabernet then riesling yeah. I mean, I would have thought Riesling would be number one, not, not having done my research properly. <laughs> no, it's interesting, no, it's isn't not, it? No, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, let's talk about your other Riesling, which is one of my huge favourites in your range, which is your Cordon Cut. Um, yeah. And I believe this was poured at the Queen's 80th birthday celebrations. Tell us about the way you produce it and when you made it for the first time. Well, well, nine, um, 83 was the first time, or 93 was the first time that I made it, and I, I think it was about mm, 80 cases that year. Um, it's made without the influence of botrytis. So because we have such dry, clean, clear conditions, we don't get botry- um, botrytis. We don't have humidity. So we're, we're pretty lucky in that respect, except that I can't make a traditional um, botrytis-affected uh, dessert wine. So the canes are cut and they're left to hang and raisin naturally in the vineyard. So you get a really pure and natural um, conditions and raisining, um, um, and then picked, hand-picked and uh, processed. But it's quite a different style. So you cut the cane, but the bunch still mm. hangs there on the, on the what's left yeah. of the cane, yeah? on the wires, yeah. 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 And, and what do you yeah. find then? I mean, you get an increase, obviously, in, in sugar, also acidity or not? Totally. Yeah. Uh, no, the, the acidity generally, because only half the um, canes are cut, so you get some mm. uncut fruit and some cut ah. fruit, otherwise it would be very difficult to process. Um, ah. The acidity is, is maintains, it's quite good, um, but um, the fruit is sort of like really clean raisins. You've got to get that timing right. I mean, it's really important. I, I don't ever sample when I'm going to pick cordon cut, I just I pick it on taste and sight. It's just yeah. 
something, uh, you know, I've been doing it for 13 years now, so I just something I know when it's ready. And is it always the same parcels or parcel or not? Um, I have two separate parcels, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about, about screw caps because Clare Valley was one of the first regions in the world to back them in, in, in a big way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, was that was it hard to convince people at first? I mean, even though Australia had played with screw caps in the 70s, it was kind of a big move mm. for you guys, wasn't it? It was a huge move. So this was the year 2000, actually, so more than, more than uh, 20 years ago. And I went 100%. There were only 13 producers, actually. So we didn't actually, as a region, decide to do it, but as um, 13 of um, of the producers decided that they would either bottle some or all of their Rieslings under screw cap. And I came to London and did a presentation at Australia House for the Circle of Wine Writers. Was that? I think I was you, there, yeah. Yes, you, I was there, yeah. I, I, yeah. I thought you might have hosted it. I think you yeah. might, oh, think maybe. You might have shared it. <laughs> I, was def- I was definitely there. <laughs> and that was, to me, that was quite a defining moment because, yeah. you know, it had all these influences in the room um, and I presented those producers that had bottled some under cork and some under screw cap and and all the others, the, the others that had done screw cap. It, to me, I just did 100% straight up. And from then on, as the wines were due to be bottling, they all got um, bottled under screw cap and I've continued yeah. with that closure. I think it's typical, typical of you that you went 100% from the start. <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> no, I think it's better. And you've recently done this sort of 30-year vertical of Rieslings, haven't you? you? You and Jeff's wine side by side. And did that kind of vindicate your decision? Did you notice some of the wines you bottled under cork had not evolved as well? No, it was it, the the recent tasting was actually not cork versus screw cap because to be honest, we feel like we've moved on from that. We we, <laughs> we don't feel like we need to actually vindicate what we've done. Um, the tasting was actually pre organics, post organics, post biodynamics. Ah, um, yeah. yeah. So there were no, there were no yeah. wines under cork in there. No, no. no interesting. Yeah. No. The other thing I want to talk to you about is is about hot vintages you know um australia we've seen the wildfires and you know it's not alone in suffering from from rising temperatures i just wonder how climate change is affecting the clare valley and in how is riesling holding up in particular and will we see other varieties planted maybe more mediterranean grapes like nero things like that Mm. it's really interesting i mean we we've just been looking on the news at um south america bio bio and and, and nitata it's yeah. uh, t- t- just awful, just terrible. Yeah. We've been so lucky because we are, I mean, the, none of those fires that you would have seen from Australia from mm. the last, I don't know, two or three years ago, probably, mm. uh, pre-COVID, wasn't it, um, really affected us where we are in the Clear Valley. However, having said that, we have we came out in 21, we came out of, you know, after three years of drought, which we were we were pretty lucky we came through that quite well and the last two years 21 and 22 have been incredibly mild so we've had really mild summers and our vintages have been um probably about three or four weeks later than average um riesling is um, incredibly uh resilient and that i i just feel like the way that the vineyards managed and with the extra care and work in the vineyard, they've stood up really, really well in those 
drought years that we had. Where that's going to go into the future, you know, your guess is as good as mine. But this year, again, we've had another cool summer. Yeah. And I mean, do you think biodynamics helps um, where the hot, hotter vintages are concerned? I do. I do. Yeah. Um, we have um, different way of managing the vineyard with native grasses. Um, we don't work the soil, so everything's kept incredibly organic. Um, and I think that has helped tremendously. Um, we also, you know, put down some mulberry teas in case it gets um, hot. We haven't had to use them, thank goodness, but they're there as a preventative um, on the on the um, foliage. And it's just been, yeah, the, the vineyards look incredibly healthy. Yeah, fantastic. So you spray spraying mulberry tea, are you, onto the leaves? Well, we we would if it was hot enough, yeah. <laughs> but we haven't had yeah. to. Oh, you only yeah. do it in the if it's hot, right? Okay. Yeah. And what does that yeah. do? Reflect heat or what? It just c- keeps the it cooler. Yeah. Ah, it's interesting. Keeps it cooler. Yeah. yeah. It's all. It's very much a learning curve. <laughs> no, it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Listen. Um. Last thing I want to ask you is just how you get away from wine. You know, you've got your family. Um. You know, Jeff and you are obviously a great couple. Do you still like travelling? I mean, you guys are great travellers, aren't you? Have you still got your place in Paris? You know, you like going to Italy, you like coming to London. We love seeing you in London. How do you get away from wine? <laughs> all of that. You never get away from wine, do you? Really? <laughs> yeah. Not ever. But I do, I, I, I'm a voracious reader. Yeah. <laughs> I read a, a lot. Yes, we do. Tra- well, now we're allowed to travel again. We, we're hoping this year to get where we are, getting to Barolo and then Portugal later on in the year. And, um, yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I, I don't ever want to get away from wine. I actually love wine, so I'm not really, um, you know, no, you never get away from it. You never get away from it. <laughs> last thing is, tell us, tell us a great book you've read recently you'd recommend to everybody. Oh, my God. I wish you'd asked me that before. Um, what have I just read? Oh, no, Tim. Actually, <laughs> you don't want to know. I'm reading a sleep book at the moment, How to Be a Fabulous Sleeper. <laughs> well, that <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> I think I think we could all do that. How to be a fantastic, how to be a fabulous sleeper sounds like a very good idea. Listen, Stephanie, uh, lovely to talk to you uh, as ever. Um, I love you guys. You're just an amazing couple, and both making brilliant and very different wines. Thank you so much for spending time chatting to me on the podcast. I'll see you soon. You're welcome. Thanks, Tim. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Steph and Jeff for the Clare Valley's Wine Power Couple, and you can see why. I love the fact that they make such different styles. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the broadcaster, journalist and author, Ollie Smith. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at timatkin, and on Instagram, at timatkinmw. See you next week.